Father, thank you for this wonderful gospel message that Matthew wrote so long ago. He wrote it for people in his world and in his time, but here we are benefiting from it all these years later. Such a wonderful treasure of truth. Reflecting on your life as you walked this earth, as Matthew talked with you and learned from you. Lord, thank you for what he's recorded here, and Lord, help us to learn what you want us to learn from it. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of us are waiting for something? I mean something important, something that seems absolutely vital to you. Yeah, there's a lot of us, isn't there? Yeah, there are. Well, as we launch this series into the Gospel of Matthew, it's important for us to realize how relevant that question was to, the, to, to Matthew's initial audience. They were waiting for something vital as well. Traditionally, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four biblical gospel writers of Jesus' life on this earth, have been called evangelists. Though the early church Christians truly loved and valued Matthew's account of Jesus' life, it was written primarily to Jews who did not yet know Jesus and were still waiting for the Messiah, for their deliverer. But God seemed to have gone silent on them as they waited. It had been 400 years since the people of Israel had heard God speak through a prophet sent by God. Imagine if the last prophetic word that we had heard, or you had heard, or that we had even heard about, had been spoken by God 400 years ago, in 1617, around the time when the King James Bible was written, or around the time when Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, or when Milton wrote Paradise Lost, around the time when the Mayflower ship arrived in Plymouth Harbor, or what became known as Plymouth Harbor, around the time the Taj Mahal was completed in India, or the Ming Dynasty ended in China. In other words, that would be a long time ago if that's the last time we received a word from the Lord. The peoples, peoples of Matthew's day had waited that long. That's how long they had been waiting to hear anything from their God. And this was no mistake on God's part. It's not like he'd run out of things to say. <laughs> no, it, it, it was by design so that anticipation would grow. As God allowed one pagan foreign power after another to rule over the Jews, the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans, the anticipation of a liberating Messiah coming to rescue them would have grown even more. But not only among the Jews, rumors were circulating beyond Israel. Two highly respected Roman historians, Suetonius and Tacitus, both wrote of an expectation felt in the early part of the first century that a world ruler would come from Judea. Suetonius wrote in the lives of the twelve Caesars, there had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule over the world. 
That was written regarding the time period before A.D. 70, which is when Rome destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Rome must have been very nervous about this rumor of a ruler coming out of Judea. The Jewish people would have known about this rumor, and it would have caused heightened hope for those who put any stock in it. Matthew lived at this time and was writing to a people who would have been feeling this anticipation. Matthew, being a Jew, writing to Jews, wanted to shout that, yes, the Jewish scriptures themselves confirmed that a king had indeed come, had already come. And it was born in Judea, a king in the line of David, who would save his people from their sins. Matthew's message, the waiting is over. The Messiah has come. And for whatever waiting any of us, anyone then, anyone now, still faces regarding life's many challenges, God wants our waiting to be faith-filled because we no longer have to wait for the King and Savior to whom we can entrust all the things we're waiting for. All of you who raise your hands and say, yeah, I'm waiting for something important, we can entrust that to this one who's already come, this King of kings and Lord of lords. Matthew's account of the story of Jesus' birth is quite simple. It has no mention of the difficult trip to Bethlehem. It has no mention of there being no room at the inn or of a baby in a stable or shepherds watching their flocks by night. There's no drummer boy either. Matthew's account of the story of Jesus simply begins, it's like he wants to just simply sum up the birth of Jesus with this statement. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife and knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Matthew and his audience did not need those other details. Matthew simply wanted to quickly point out that this is who we've been waiting for. <laughs> the waiting is over. So let's now, let's turn to Matthew chapter 2 and let's look at what he writes following that wonderful phrase and he called his name Jesus. Let's read the first 12 verses of chapter 2 which is for those who are waiting for the king. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secret, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, 
Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring word to me that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Then going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. There are many characters in the second chapter of Matthew. Hopeful magi, a wicked king, passive priests, angelic visitors, grieving families that we have yet to read about, and two confused parents. But there's another character Matthew mentions again and again throughout this passage, an obvious character. In 13 of the 23 verses, Matthew explicitly refers to this child, a child born to be king. Matthew is eager to show his readers that God has been referring to this child again and again in many prophetic words for hundreds of years. And he provides five Old Testament quotes to illustrate this. Theologian Ben Witherington III writes that the function of these quotes is to confirm that some rather unusual twists in the story were all along part of God's plan for the coming Messiah. These unusual twists did not take God by surprise. He actually predicted that they would happen. They were a part of his plan. In other words, when things don't go according to plan, perhaps you haven't noticed what the plan is. I'm conscious of the fact that I'm speaking to people here who have experienced many twists and turns in your own personal stories. Some of you are going through some right now. Unexpected twists and turns. Unpleasant twists and turns. And be, be assured that this story reassures us that God is in control of all of them. And in some cases may have intended them to happen so that he could accomplish in your life what easier circumstances never could have accomplished. Matthew is eager for his readers to eventually see that the main character of the story he's about to tell is in charge of everything we'll ever face. He's in charge of every twist and turn we face, every single difficult thing, important thing, vital thing that we're waiting for. He's in charge of it all. And he wants to show that in this story. Let's look at the first quote Matthew refers to, which is primarily from Micah 5.2. But I'm going to read it from Matthew, Matthew 2.6 again. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. And from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This quote was provided when this traveling company led by magi from a foreign land arrived in Jerusalem, explaining they were led there by a new and unique star, and they were inquiring about what the Magi firmly believed to be the coming of he who was born, born king of the Jews. This got Herod and the whole city of Jerusalem stirred up. Foreign 
dignitaries speaking of a, a new king? Could this be the Messiah if a cosmic sign led these men here? These magi were from a learned class. They were likely astrologers and may have come from as far as Persia, which is present-day Iran. They had credibility. And they had Herod's attention. The Herod, the king this passage speaks of, who later became known as Herod the Great, was known to be violently paranoid. He executed many people who may have had a claim to his throne or who he suspected to be conspiring to claim his throne, including one of his ten wives and three of his nine sons. One of them, he, he killed one of his sons just days before Herod's own death. Caesar in Rome said it would be better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. Half Jewish and born in the area of South Judea that had been inhabited by the Edomites during the Jewish exile to Babylon, Herod was a half-breed, unloved by the Jewish people. And he certainly did not want any Messiah to come and interrupt his reign. So in order to find out where this so-called king of the Jews had been born so that he could deal with this new threat, Herod inquired of the chief priests and scribes, and they referred him to Micah 5 too. But Matthew's quote has an interesting choice of phrases. Let's read it from Matthew, Micah, directly from Micah. Micah actually says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That last phrase is totally applicable to the Messiah, but Matthew omits it. He doesn't even include it. And instead, Matthew ends the quote with a different phrase, not even found in Micah. He ends it with, who will shepherd my people Israel. Why did he do that? Why did he omit this, this last phrase of a sentence, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, and put in, who will shepherd my people Israel? Most commentators agree that this would have been Matthew's doing, not, not the scribes, not the, not the priests who Herod inquired of. Most commentators agree that Matthew would have jumbled these phrases. And I think, and others think, that Matthew possibly did so to contrast King Herod's violent nature with an emphasis on Jesus being a gentle and caring shepherd king. He wanted to emphasize the gentleness of this new ruler in contrast to the one they were presently living under. This quote speaks of God keeping his promises to his people, of God gently leading his people, of God ruling over all. But the chief priests and scribes appeared to show no interest in any of this. No interest in following the Magi to see this new king. Is it possible, and I wonder, was their reluctance to follow the Magi possibly due to a fear of King Herod? The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that Herod was so concerned that no one would be sad about his death, which actually happened shortly after Jesus' birth, 
that he gave orders for a large group of Jewish leaders to be slain in the city in which he died at the time when he died to make sure that people showed grief when he died. Fortunately, after he died, the people he left those orders with did not carry out that order, but it was an order that was known about. No one wanted to offend this man. But Matthew doesn't actually go out of his way to highlight the passivity of the priests. Matthew seems more interested in highlighting and describing the touching reverence of these eager magi who have traveled so far to find this newly born king and to present him with costly gifts and to bow down before him. Matthew wants his readers to look at these magi as their example of how to respond to this king. Matthew, a Jewish writer, writing to Jews, is holding up these foreigners as the example of how to worship this newly born king. But Matthew also seems more interested in highlighting Herod's hatred, possibly, possibly in anticipation of the resentment and suffering and hostility that Jesus would be destined to face throughout his life and that his followers would also face. So as a reader of this story, as you face unusual twists and turns in your life, as you, place, or as you face unpleasant circumstances, which one of these messages speaks loudest to you this morning? Matthew's reminder of Micah 5 and 2 Samuel 5 that speaks of a shepherd is meant to assure us that the one we wait for has come as the faithful king who keeps his promises, as the shepherd king who gently leads his lambs, and as the great king for whom no circumstance is beyond his realm or authority. He's in charge of it all, whatever you're going through, whatever any of us are going through. 2016 definitely contained some unusual twists for me. I had no idea that 2016 would begin with me having a life-threatening infection in the lining of my heart that would land me in the hospital for half of January. I had no idea that I would barely work a day until mid-October 2016. I had no idea that somewhere amidst all that, I would get rolled into an operating room for open-heart surgery. I didn't go into 2016 expecting that. These were twists and turns. But as they rolled me into that room, I remember feeling total peace. I knew that a gentle shepherd was leading me. I knew that a great and powerful king was in charge. I don't know if you remember that picture that we sent where they were rolling me toward the operating room and there's this mirror dome in the ceiling. You know, the kind where you can see all over the room by looking up at this mirror dome. And, the, and as they rolled me under it, I said, stop, stop, I want to take a selfie here. <laughs> I, I kind of doubt any previous patient had ever asked for that on their way to open heart surgery. So I take this picture, I've got this phone on my chest, I snap it, it takes a picture of all the people, Fiona and Amy and the doctor and the nurse. It's beautiful. It was a beautiful picture. They take my blood pressure and it's totally normal. And they're just, they're just like, wow, 
I was at peace. I knew I was in God's hands, not their hands. When there's a twist and turn in your life, don't forget. Don't forget the faithful king that keeps his promises, the shepherd king who gently leads his lambs, and the great king for whom no circumstance in our lives is beyond his realm or authority. Let's turn now back to Matthew 2 and read some more. I'm going to read from verses 13 to 18. This is for those who are waiting for salvation. When Herod, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The Magi are gone now, having been warned in a dream to avoid Herod on their return journey. And then the angel appears to Joseph, warning him to take the child out of Herod's reach, instructing him to take the child to Egypt and to wait for further instructions. Do you realize this made Jesus, at the very beginning of his life, a refugee? Just like millions of people in the world today, and like some of you in this room have experienced. Jesus identifies with your suffering, with the suffering of those in refugee camps right now. During Bethlehem Live, Mary and Joseph tended to get warnings from children. It wasn't rare for a child to lean in on the quiet manger scene and say to Mary and Joseph, there's a mean king trying to get your baby. If you were one of the shepherd guides, you would have witnessed this once in a while, these children trying to warn Jesus' parents. I played an angry Herod in some of the BL performances, and it was always a tough call to know whether or not I should ease up on the tone and volume of my threats when a child began to cry. I remember genuine expressions of horror on, that sometimes appeared on the younger children's faces as I started screaming murderous threats. <laughs> Herod was enraged. He'd been tricked. Magi had tricked him. And they had not reported back the whereabouts of the child so that I too may go and worship him. Herod's response was to send soldiers to kill all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and younger. What a horrible, horrible tragedy this, this simple little town of Bethlehem had to endure just because it had been chosen as the birthplace of Jesus. So Matthew quotes two Old Testament passages in this section, neither of which appear at first to be obvious messianic prophecies. When Mary and Joseph and Jesus go to Egypt to wait for the death of Herod, Matthew wrote, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Well, that's from Hosea 11 verse 1. If we go to Hosea, it doesn't 
it doesn't sound like it's referring to Jesus. It was obviously referring to the nation of Israel being delivered from Egypt. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It is referring to Jesus, but the Israelites would have understood it as being about themselves. Over 400 years later, Matthew applies this passage to Jesus. See Campbell Morgan, a wonderful preacher and expositor, eloquently writes regarding this unexpected prophecy. Herod was mad with rage, and the angel warned Joseph and Mary, and they took the little child and hurried into Egypt. But heaven watched and saw all Israel driven into Egypt in the person of that little child. Matthew says he was to come back again. He had only gone there that he might be afflicted in all their affliction, that he might enter into their sorrows. And as of old it was written, Out of Egypt did I call my son. So again shall the king come out of Egypt, only this time as a little child, but leading a great and glorious exodus. The glorious exodus Jesus leads includes people from every nation and every generation leading them from spiritual bondage into new life with Jesus and into a glorious and eternal relationship with the Father in heaven. That's the exodus Jesus leads as out of Egypt God calls his son. It's an exodus that was yet to happen then, but has happened by the millions and millions today. People from every nation flocking to Jesus. We have no idea. We live in this skeptical North American society in which it's tough to see many people flocking to Jesus. But all over the world, in Latin America, in, in North Africa, in Southern Africa, in Asia, Central Asia, in, in, in the Far East, there are people flocking to Jesus. Thank you, Lord. It's a great and glorious exodus. No one need live in bondage to anything anymore. For if you know this Jesus of Matthew 2, you can experience the victory of his resurrection life as you submit your life to him, receive new life from him, and are filled with his powerful Holy Spirit. Those encouraging truths about God out of Egypt, he God calling his son actually fits unexpectedly well with the tragic prophetic word that follows. Matthew explained all that would happen to the baby boys of Bethlehem and then quotes Jeremiah 31.15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So many mothers who lost their sons. Truly, this is a sad and dismal prophecy. Originally, a prophecy about a, a nation under judgment, as if Rachel herself was lamenting the loss of her children that had been carried away into exile into Babylon. That's what it was talking about. But this verse appears in the context of hope. The very next verse in Jeremiah 31, the very next verse says, Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back 
from the land of the enemy. They shall come back. Doesn't that sound like the great exodus Matthew had just prophesied about from Hosea? Many of Matthew's Jewish leaders, I suspect most of Matthew's Jewish leaders, would have known the context of this verse in Jeremiah to do with Rachel weeping for her children. The larger context of Jeremiah 30 to 33 is all about restoration and renewal. It's all about the new covenant that Jeremiah mentions and that Jesus came to introduce. Let me read you a little more from Jeremiah 31. Verses 31 to 34 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall, they, shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Wow, that's comforting and falls in the context of Rachel weeping for her children. Yeah, the children of Israel had been disciplined. They'd gone into exile. But God shows mercy to those who he disciplines. And his discipline is always loving. Do you know that the section of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 30 to 33, is called the Book of Consolations? That's what the Jews knew, knew that section to be called. The Book of Consolations. Does Rachel weeping for her children sound like consolation? Not at all. But Matthew knew he was quoting from a section that didn't just have weeping in it, but comfort in it. Rachel would be comforted as God forgave his people's sins and drew close to them so that they would know the Lord. Salvation has come to God's people at a time of great need. If you're in a time of great need, the best thing we can experience is to know the Lord, to know who he is in that situation, to know the unchanging God who's with us in that situation. Do you know Jesus today? Do you know that God? You may feel desperate and alone in a, living a life without Jesus. But Matthew wants everyone, everyone who is waiting for salvation from the awful consequences of our rebellion against God to know that the very God we have wronged sent his son to pay the penalty for all the wrong things we ever did. We simply need to turn from our sins and turn to him and put him in charge of our lives. And he'll give us that salvation we wait for. Matthew's reminder of Hosea 11 and the context of Jeremiah 31 is meant to assure us that though there is upheaval in our lives 
And though there's many tears, the salvation we're waiting for has come. The Savior we've waited for has come. And he's able to set us free, to forgive us our sins, and to give us new hearts so that we never again need to live with that soul-crushing weight of regret or of condemnation for wrong things we feel trapped by. God came to deliver his people. And he's delivering people today. He wants to deliver you today. Even if you're already saved, there are things we experience deliverance from daily, whether it be a wrong attitude or, or a wrong behavior that we feel stuck in. The Savior has come. He wants to help us. But let's conclude by reading the last part of Matthew 2, starting at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. It's interesting how this chapter ends before Matthew quickly moves on to Jesus' adult life. Joseph was initially going to take the child Jesus back to Judea, but was warned in a dream not to go there because of Archelaus, Herod's son, who quickly became as brutal and oppressive as his father Herod had been. So Matthew writes that Joseph instead chose to go back to Galilee, to the town of Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is the first time in Matthew 2 that Matthew quotes from the prophets, plural. Up until now, he's been quoting from the prophet, the prophet, the prophet, singular. This exact quote appears nowhere in the Old Testament because Matthew is not quoting a statement that a prophet made. He's quoting an idea. He's quoting an idea that various Old Testament prophets prophesied about. None of us likely fully understand how Matthew is wrapping up this section about Jesus' early life. None of us likely understand the stigma that the town of Nazareth had and that this word Nazarene had in Jesus' day. Nazareth was a despised place in Jesus' day. When Philip told Nathanael about Jesus of Nazareth, Nathanael wondered aloud, can anything good come out of Nazareth? D.A. Carson writes, here Jesus grew up not as Jesus the Bethlehemite, with its wonderful Davidic overtones, but as Jesus the Nazarene, with all the degradation of a sneer. Carson adds that when Christians in the book of Acts were referred to as the Nazarene sect, that expression was meant to hurt. First century readers of Matthew's account would have quickly understood Matthew's point. He's not saying that the prophets foretold that Jesus would be born in Nazareth. He's saying that the Messiah would be despised. 
Other commentators agree it was a term of contempt, but also believe that the Hebrew word Nazarene could have a linguistic connection to another Hebrew word, branch, that appears in Isaiah 11.1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. Jesse, that was the father of King David. Carson sees this possibility as a reinforcement of the idea that the Messiah would emerge from humble obscurity and low state, from a royal line hacked down to a stump and reared in surroundings guaranteed to win him scorn. Looking elsewhere in Isaiah, we see in Isaiah 53.3 a similar theme. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Like Matthew said, the prophets agreed on this point. The Messiah would be despised. This is an example of waiting for what we don't expect. And that's what Matthew is getting at here at the last part of chapter 2. This was not what the Jews expected. They wanted a mighty deliverer who would set them free from Roman oppression. And this is a vital lesson for us today. Jesus does come as a king. And Jesus does come to provide us with salvation. But he does not always come to us in the way we expect him to. I want a mighty king to come and powerfully save me from my difficult circumstances right now. That's what I want. It's when life is difficult and we get to test our trust in God that we grow in our trust in God. So just as it was true of Matthew's first readers, so it's true of us. There may be things in our lives regarding which we're waiting for God to act. But it may be that we're actually waiting for what we don't expect. This may be because God wants to achieve something far greater in us than what we're hoping for. We're hoping for something external to change. We're hoping for external circumstances to change. But God is wanting to do something internally as well. He cares about the externals. But we tend to care about the externals to the exclusion of what's going on inside us. God cares about both, and he deeply cares about our hearts. Often when we ask for external things, God answers by doing things in our heart. And we may want deliverance from those outside pressures in the same way the Jews of Jesus' time wanted deliverance from Rome. But God wants us to learn how to peacefully, peacefully trust him in our hearts, no matter what pressures we're facing. A lot of you raised your hands at the beginning. You're waiting for something important, something vital. I just want to urge you. There's a Savior who's come, and there's a great King who's come. And because of him, you can wait peacefully, trustingly, as God does his work in our hearts while waiting for his perfect timing regarding those external things. The king has come. The salvation we long for has been provided. But Jesus may still, still continue to come to us in ways that we don't expect so that he can accomplish things in our hearts that are far greater than what we ever could have achieved 
by our own understanding. Let's submit ourselves and bow low to the king.